But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. We thank you, Lord, that as we look to your word, we can trust that the words of that song are what you intend to do with the word in our hearts. And today, since we will take a special look at the testimony of your word, the testimony of the Bible to us of who Christ is, would you speak to our hearts in the places that we need to adjust how we interact with your word? Or we need to perhaps consider our attitudes, our motivations, or even very practically our strategies, our plans, our diligence. Lord, would you encourage us as we look at this passage that through your word we see the one who is the Word, who is the Word of God, the Son of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we even see him through this passage this morning and be motivated to move forward, searching not the Scriptures for their own sake, but for what treasure lies within them, which is Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. Well, a little background, if you know, if you notice, looking at this, we are yet again starting right in the middle of Jesus' sort of monologue, which is turning into a, a sort of rebuke, um, an accusation turned around from the accusation that he received from these Jewish leaders. If you remember from the beginning of John chapter 5, verse 1, we had a man who was sitting at a pool who had been lame for 38 years and was hoping to be healed by the stirring up of the water. And as Jesus came to him and asked him that very important question, do you want to be healed? He says, look, I've got no one to take me into the water when the water's stirred up. And as soon as I try to go, somebody else beats me to it. Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And he's healed in that instant. His life is turned around dramatically. And the note that really strikes a chord with the leaders, the Bible teachers of the day, is he did this work on the Sabbath. We ought not do work on the Sabbath. That's a day for rest. Jesus' response is, my father is working until now, and so I am working. The Jews, the Jewish leaders, that is, advance their seeking to persecute him, to seeking to kill him because of this statement. And his rebuttal to this does not deny that statement, but in fact gives further explanation to what it means that he is the son of God, that he shares equality with God, and yet he submits to God. He then turns us to certain testimonies. Last week we saw the testimony of John the Baptist yet again. We saw John the Baptist in the beginning of the Gospel of John, and Jesus brings him up again to say that he was a bright and shining lamp, 
And to those who went to him that he's speaking to right now, he says, you are willing for a while to rejoice in his light, but only for a while. At some point you said, that's it. We don't want to believe any further. And Jesus says, this is a major problem because John comes as a forerunner to announce me, the, the, the coming of the real Christ. And, and you, weren't, you didn't hang around with John the Baptist long enough to recognize who I truly am. So that's why you're rejecting me. Jesus is turning around these accusations and he's going to bring a couple more accusations in today. If you notice again from the title, and I already mentioned it, we're thinking primarily about this matter of the word of God. And you can look ahead to verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures are going to be the next big testimony that Jesus brings about. He, of course, mentions the testimony of the Father, and we'll see that connection between the testimony of the Father and the testimony of the Word of God. It should be fairly obvious to us. But I wondered this week as I thought about the problem that these Jewish leaders are facing and why they can't seem to accept the testimony of the Word, the testimony of John the Baptist, and even the testimony of Christ himself and his works. When it comes particularly to the matter of the word, there was a Jewish rabbi at the time who died around 10 AD. So just as Jesus was um, a young boy around that time, his name was Hillel. And one of his very popular phrases that was a very catchy one to carry around with you and to prompt you to reading God's word was more Torah, more life. That's, I like that, don't you? Doesn't that sound good? More Torah, well, that sounds like a funny old word that we don't use every day. He's just talking about the word of God. So in a sense, he's saying, if you have more of the word of God in you, you have more life in you, right? And so as Jesus brings this accusation, the accusation sounds like something good, doesn't it? You search the scriptures. Sounds like a very holy and righteous thing to do. Sounds like something God wants us to do, to diligently study the scriptures. And yet they testify about Christ. Hillel's idea was more Torah, more life. I wonder if that conflicts with something that Jesus is saying here. So the call, the thing that we need to listen to from this passage is the fact that the testimony of the word of God, the testimony of the Bible that you hold in your hands this morning, even if through a digital platform, that testimony stands forever to point us to Christ. That is its primary purpose. And Jesus brings its testimony to bear on his audience and on us as well this morning, if we'll hear it. First again, he says, you sent to John, you were willing for a while to hear from him. But then today, he says, you actually haven't seen God, and you actually haven't heard his voice. And lastly, he says, you don't have the word in you. You think that in the scriptures, in that word, you have life, but the problem is you're refusing me. You're looking at the action of pursuing the scriptures apart from the purpose of pursuing the scriptures. So in verses 36 through 37, we get it very clear from Jesus that he is greater than John. John was just a forerunner. His testimony is greater than his because Jesus is the main event and everything that he brings up testifies to him which is fascinating because Jesus doesn't come. He says, I haven't come to testify of myself. 
right? He's not here to make a big name for himself. Later on, he'll even turn that into an additional accusation against the Jewish leaders, the religious people of the day, because he says there might be somebody else who would come in his own name promoting himself, and you'd receive that guy, but you won't receive me, partially because I'm not promoting myself. Why is that? We're getting into next week's sermon a little bit, of course, but it's this matter of receiving glory from others besides God rather than giving glory to him. So the testimony that Jesus brings up today, first of all, the works that are given to him by the Father. Keep an eye over on 36 and 37 with me. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works of Jesus This is not Jesus spent some time working at a soup kitchen or set up the chairs for church or that he taught the Sunday school lesson. Those are good things that we do and we say, here are the works of the fruit of what Christ has done in my life, how that pours out into the life of those around me. But when Jesus comes, he does things like talks to somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years and says, why don't you get on up and go home? He goes to an outcasted woman in Samaria in John chapter 4 and transforms her life such that she, rather than ostracizing herself from the community, she becomes the herald of the good news in the midst of her community. Nobody that we see Jesus interact with has a eh, kind of response to him, good or bad. The good responses are, yeah, transformed life, newness of life in him. But the responses that are negative are also pretty pointed as well pretty serious, a a serious rejection of him. And that's who he's talking to right now. The works given from the father. So the father has, again, Jesus is pointing out that the father has sent him to do certain things. And that is what he's doing. He doesn't come in his own name. He doesn't come with his own agenda. He comes in the name of the father and does what he is called to do in that context. These signs prove that Jesus was sent by God and therefore they should be believed. But they are, in fact, just that. They are signs. Now, today, I don't think that any of us, if we could be convinced by Scripture that this was the main idea, none of us would argue with the idea of constantly performing miracles, casting out demons, healing the sick. I mean, which one of us, if we knew we could heal any sick person, wouldn't head over to all the hospitals in the area and keep going until we've healed everyone? Jesus doesn't do that with his work, so does he? I mean, he he does a pretty significant amount. If you read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and combine it with John, and look at all the miracles that he's done, one commentator says that Jesus basically banished sickness from Israel at that time. He did a lot, but he didn't do it permanently. He didn't take care of every single ailment. Why? Because the works are signs. They're signs to point to something else, just like John the Baptist was not one who came and said, hey, listen, I'm, gather- I'm calling a gathering together for myself. You should all follow me. I'm going to teach for about 30 or 40 years or so. I've got a lot to say. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm here to point to someone else. And so the works are here to point to someone else. And then on top of that, the words are here to point to someone else. We believe in the divine inspiration of God's word. We believe that God spoke these through people. Peter tells us, the apostle tells us, that the Holy Spirit carried them along and gave them words to write down to us to endure for over 2,000 years. 
and more for the Old Testament. And yet they exist to point to something else. We don't worship the Bible. That's an accusation that comes a lot of times from those from certain camps to other certain camps, that, that perhaps rather than worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. Scripture is meant to be a pointer to us. Pointer rather not to us, pointer for us to someone else, to Christ himself. And so these words that are delivered by the Father are a means of grace, the church has called them. found a good definition from Table Talk magazine. And in it they say that the means of grace are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and all the benefits of redemption. And of course, they're talking about the word of God there primarily. Our main means of grace is what God has spoken to us. Our task then is to take the words that are delivered by the Father and to deal rightly with them, to respond appropriately as they are a testimony of Christ pointing us ever to him. That's the main thing that we need to see in this passage, that we need to listen to and, and, and realize, okay, this is what Jesus is getting at. These, all the signs point to him, and particularly we focus today on the word of God as a sign pointing to Christ. But next we need to realize that there's a problem with how we handle the word, how we respond to the word. We need to realize that what we do with the word shows something about our relationship with Christ. So if I were to ask you this morning, how are you doing with your relationship with Jesus? And if in your head, you could give yourself a score on a scale of one to five, one being, I don't even know if I'm a Christian, I think I'm totally lost, five being I'm a saint in heaven and have no problems at all, so please nobody pick one or five, two, three, or four, where would you put yourself on the strength of your relationship with Christ today? And secondly, what rubric do you use to decide that? If you gave yourself a two, why? If you gave yourself a three, why? If you gave yourself a four, why? If you gave yourself a five, you weren't paying attention to what I said about five. <laughs> but what do you use to decide that? And I think many of us, the first thing we might say is, okay, I'm not doing so good with my Bible reading. Or I gave myself a four because I'm doing really, really good. I am caught up. I'm not a week behind like I was last week. Things are going well, therefore, I know my relationship with Christ is going well because you talk about this book a whole lot. I know it's important, and so I'm trying to read it, and therefore, I think I'm doing okay. And yet, the problem with that is if we simply trust in our searching out the scriptures to give us an idea of the heartbeat of our faith or the, the health of our faith, our relationship with Christ, then we may in fact be in this category of verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, or rather just life. You think that you have life in the scriptures. And we, I mean, oh my goodness, this is why we're splitting up this big um, discussion that he's having with the, the Jewish leaders is because it's so easy for us to look at this conversation and say that the people he's talking to, they're so far removed from me. But particularly as it comes to the word, we can see that they're not so far removed. 
Jesus says earlier, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, but his voice you have never heard. You can maybe imagine interjections from the Jewish leaders at this point saying, hold on, we may not have heard his voice, but we have the word, we have the testimony, and that's just as good as hearing the voice. And Jesus might say, yeah, it's the right source, right? But you still haven't heard his voice. You haven't seen his form. You know nothing about the character of God. And they might say, hold on a second. I have the entire book of Deuteronomy memorized. What a great place to know everything there is to know about the character of God and how he relates to people. Jesus is saying, if you've rejected me, then you don't, you've got nothing from your study of scriptures. It's a terrifying thing for the audience that Jesus is speaking to to hear in this passage. To imagine that the life that they've spent trying to grow in holiness and grow in right standing with God is worth absolutely nothing because they've missed the main point. Because they have seen in the scriptures an end in themselves rather than that the scriptures are pointing to someone else, pointing to the one who is to come. And so I ask you again, how are you doing today with your walk with Christ? What number would you give yourself on a scale of one to five? What rubric do you use beyond looking at the word, beyond even the works perhaps? Is there something deeper, something else that we need to consider as we consider our own spiritual health? Again, that Rabbi Hillel basically gave this idea that with a lot of learning, there's a lot of life, right? More Torah, more life. And it's very easy for us to latch onto that idea and say, I know how to make my Christian life better. And it may, in fact, be because I can look at other people and say, there are those that I know who can just rattle off Scripture all day long. It was said of Charles Spurgeon that if you would have cut him, he would have bled Bible. I mean, people really, we always notice when people know their Bibles well and our immediate assumption, and oftentimes it's perhaps right, but our immediate assumption is they know all of that Bible, they're doing really well with Jesus. I don't know all of that Bible, therefore I am not doing really well with my walk with Jesus. And it's very easy for us at that point to decide two errors. One, that All I need to do then is get myself that kind of Bible knowledge download and then I can feel better about myself too because I can compare myself to my friend who knows so much scripture. So again, the first error being to say, well, let's just mimic what we see from other people so that I can have better assurance of my life in Christ. The second error then would be for us to say, oh my goodness, there's no way I will ever know what so-and-so knows about the Bible. What is even the point? Why did I ever start this in the first place? Do you ever spiral like that with things? It's so easy to just snowball down the hill with that kind of train of thinking. And it's an error. It's an error because, again, Jesus says, in the scriptures, you think you have life, but you've missed the whole point. And he's not referring to, hey, look, you did pretty good. Your exegesis is a little bit weak. You're supposed to come to the the point that you see who the Messiah is on paper and in your head. The context that he's condemning them in, not condemning, because again, he said, I didn't come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. The, The context that he is explaining this to them in is that they've been searching and they 
think they know a lot. They have a lot of Bible memorized. They have a lot of theology in their head. And yet when Jesus stands in front of them, they can't recognize him for who he is. So the true rubric for us when we consider our spiritual health must be, do I recognize Jesus for who he is? Do I know him? We don't have a relationship with the Bible. The Bible is a means for us to be in relationship with God. We need to take the Bible seriously. Please don't at all, and we'll end this, this, this talk, this sermon, thinking about the importance of reading Scripture, but I hope that at this point so far you haven't heard me saying, boy, we sure have been wrong about talking about the Bible so important and saying, oh, the Bible, when we read the Bible, that's the most important thing we're going to do today. I say that every week on purpose because it is the most important thing we're going to do today. If you have the means to interact with God, you need to utilize them. And if there's no greater means to interact with God besides the Word, even challenge me on this if you want, go through the Bible, find a reason to say that prayer is a better means of grace than the Bible, and I will concede to you. But what I see here is this. God has to speak first, because I'm the one who's messed up. I'm the one who gets it wrong. Prayer is my response to what God has said. And so if we take to prayer and we say, you know, I'm going to give myself a three because I pray every single day. And we do need to ask ourselves, okay, what about the word? what, What informs your prayer? What undergirds your prayer? Because if it's not the word, if it's not the truth of the word, if it's not the truth of the word pointing us to Christ, then it's going to be something else giving us a bad idea about who God is. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be healthy. God wants everything to work out okay in the end. God wants me to do whatever I think is right. None of that comes from Scripture. It comes from our culture. It comes from a a, a warping of the sense of freedom into, uh, rather than freedom, turning ourselves into the dictators of our own spiritual reality and imagining that we can suddenly say, this is how things ought to be. And that, my friends, is what's going on with the Jewish leaders here. More Torah, more life. All I need is to just memorize the Torah as best as I can. God will approve of me there. I want to point you to the thief on the cross dying next to Jesus. The other thief on the other side of Jesus mocking him and saying, if you really are the Christ, why don't you save yourself and us? And then this thief on the other side says, are you crazy? Do you know who we're talking to? We deserve to be here. He doesn't deserve to be here. And that thief looks at Jesus and says, do you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus doesn't say, I don't know, have you lived by more Torah, more life? How many Bible verses do you have memorized? Do you really understand who I am? Do you know all the ins and outs theologically? He doesn't say any of that. He also doesn't even say, have you been baptized? Have you been to church recently? How many Sundays did you miss? Tell me for real. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Today, you will be with me You can join in any word if you want. In paradise. Today, right now, I'm bringing you with me where I'm going. Not because you know or have done or have experienced or understand none of those things. Jesus reveals that at the heart of the problem that we have, this warping of our understanding of rightness with God, verse 40, yet... Even though the word bears witness of who I am, and even though you have searched them wrongly and said, if I could just figure it out, I'll figure it out. He says, here's the problem. 
you refuse to come to me because, look at verse 40 with me, just in case you're wondering if I'm making this up. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. What Jesus is saying here is that life is standing right in front of them. It's being offered to them. And they're refusing the good thing that God has for them. And if that's true of any of us, then no amount of scriptural understanding or exposure or anything that leads us to the point where we could reject life as it stands out right in front of us, no amount of scriptural activity can make that wrong right if we're unwilling to come to Christ. It's crazy. It comes down to a matter of our will. Our wills are what's really stopping us from relating to God. And yet, we think so often of the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the justice of God, those things that are true. He's going to put an end to all evil, and not just all evil, but all evildoers. The book of Revelation, in the end, gives a long list of all these evildoers, and at the very end, it includes anybody who thought that they weren't included by saying, and all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Just one. With all that truth, with all of the consideration of the justice of God and his anger at sin and evil, it is so easy for us as we read our scriptures to think, the problem isn't really in me, the problem is in God. He's got to ease up a little bit. What is wrong with him? Jesus says the problem is not God. The problem is not what has been communicated in the word. The problem is you refuse to come and receive life. So let me ask you today, Christian first, and non-believer, if you're in here and you don't know Christ, this question comes to all people. What does it look like for you to come to Christ? Believer, what does it look like for you to come to Christ daily? Does it look like you coming and saying, all right, Lord, here's what, here's what I made, you know, just before I came up here, my daughter gave me something. This beautiful picture. I'm just, there's, there's nothing significant about it by itself. It's just, just pretty good, right? She's learning letters. I guess it goes this way. And I know that neither of my daughters in presenting their artwork or their crafts or their accomplishments, I don't think that, at least at this stage at four and two, that any of them are coming to me and saying, I really hope dad will accept this and know how much I love him and know how much I want things to be right between us. Mostly because they're four and two, right? They're not thinking those kinds of things. The problem is not with the father's love. The problem is with the willingness of his children and with the willingness of those who are lost, who do not know him. This sermon is not a matter of coming to this passage and saying, okay, just read your Bible more and read it better, people. What's wrong with you? That's not what's wrong with us. It's, not, it, it's deeper than that. It's a willingness to come and receive life. If we think that this message boils down to, I need to read my Bible more and I need to read it better, then we're falling into the same error of verse 39 that the Jewish leaders are falling into. You search the scriptures. That, that word means, in another translation, it says, I think it's the Berean Study Bible, says they pour over the scriptures, and yet they do not come to have life. They do not put their faith in the one who has written all of these things to them. They don't believe the word that they're reading. Isn't that incredible? None of them would say, yeah, I don't really believe it. 
even though today many people do. There might even be pastors you might run into who would say, yeah, I open up this book every week, but I don't believe anything that it says. We just do it because that's what our tradition has done. So my two-year-old yesterday, we went to Wapakoneta, and we were very excited. We were hyping up this free carriage ride that we were going to get on. And the first time we got there, the horse returned, and it was our turn. We were really excited, and they said, hey, the horse needs to take a break. He's really exhausted. So we had to go find lunch, and we came back, and we waited again, and we finally got on, and it was everything we hoped and dreamed for, right? And then as, as we are walking through the town and talking in the way of saying, that was really nice, wasn't it? I hope we can do that next year. You know, all the things parents say to cut off their kids from saying things like, can we go again? Are we going to go? None of that mattered to Lucy. For the afternoon until we finally got home, I mean home, like the car ride home that was, in, it was included, she continually said, are we going to see the horse? Where's the horse? When are we going to see the horse? Is the horse resting? Are we going to ride with the horse? Are we going to ride on the horse this time? All those questions continued. And every time we were like a broken record, we were like, honey, we're not going to see the horse. That was our turn. Our turn is over. And the horse had, you know, we're coming up with all sorts of other explanations. The horse is too tired. You know, all those kinds of things. And my two-year-old just will not accept that fact, even though I'm telling her very, very plainly, we're not going back to see the horse. How we come to and hear and receive the word of God matters. It matters a lot more than how my two-year-old receives the bad news that we're not going to get back in the carriage ride. It matters a lot more than that because there's a lot more at stake. And because Christ has come to take all of that that matters upon himself, to take the judgment of all of his people upon himself. And that is what we need to repent of this morning. At the cross, Christ's primary work the work that he came to do, that the testimony of the word has been saying from generation to generation. He came and fulfilled that testimony in order to bring us to himself. You refuse to come to me. That's the truth for all of mankind. That is the truth for all of the church in every moment that we walk in our old life rather than in our new life. And what does the gospel say to the believer and the non-believer? It says, you refuse to come to me, so what? I'm coming to you. That's the gospel. That's why Christmas is so exciting and why I don't understand why you guys don't like Christmas as much as I do. I know you do. Thank you, Mickey. It's a small remnant of us that really get, I'm just kidding. But seriously, though, at Christmas time, God's son comes to the earth in the form of a baby. Why? Yes, so that he could live the whole human life and the whole human ex existence. And, and there's a good theological answer for that that is glorious and beautiful and wonderful for us to ponder. That he had to be made like his brothers in order to redeem his brothers, the Bible says. That he had to face all the temptations that we, we face and overcome that temptation on our part. But the, the beautiful poetry that undergirds that theology is the gift of God is a baby. I just saw one popped up. There's another one right there. The gift of God is a baby. That's beautiful. That's marvelous. That's wonderful. To a people that he says are his enemies, that are deserving of eternal condemnation, separation, and punishment. 
And just as harsh and heavy as the judgment of God sounds, so the grace of God comes in and is even more beautiful, even more wonderful than the weight of his justice. Because he gives us his son as a baby. That baby grew up and lived a perfect life on your account. and Suffered the punishment that you deserve. He didn't go to the cross to make a point. He went to the cross to make us right. To make us his. All what he has done. Coming to the matter of our spending time in the Bible, our discipline with it, and our attitude towards it, we need grace, and that's exactly what God offers to us. He offers us grace so that he can give us more grace. Because every time you open this thing up and you go, oh my goodness, it's so dusty, or oh my goodness, I don't even remember what I read the last time I opened this thing up, or oh my goodness, I don't really get this passage, and how am I supposed to be a pastor if I don't understand all that long list of complaints and worries? What does God meet us with? Come to me and receive life. I've sent my son to you so that you can have it. It's not more Torah, more life. It's more Christ, more life. And go to the Torah to find Christ. The works are good. The works that Jesus came and accomplished. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He, he did all these wonderful things. But the reason that we don't see that so much isn't just because the church just isn't living the way it should, but because we have a surer testimony in the word of God. And because this is his appointed means for us to hear from him clearly. And to proclaim to the lost the good news. And so two things from scripture with this to help us with this idea of more Christ and more life. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Through the word of Christ. I did that motion on purpose. Faith doesn't come from the word. We don't download it. The word points us to where we can get more faith. It points us to Christ. Is your faith weak? Are you a two? Are you a three? Would you like to be a four? Would you even like to press on to five? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. If you would come to church on Sunday morning anticipating, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word, if we would come with that attitude, and I'm not saying you do or don't, I hope you do, then, then the door is open for you to receive more faith. Search the scriptures diligently. Mind the great depths of God's grace for you in his word because every bit of it points us to Jesus and what he's done to bring us back to himself. So Romans 7, 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15. Paul talks about the sacred writings, talking about the Bible. And he says that they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Not, it's a matter of through when we come to the, to the Bible when we come to this passage, when we come to every passage, it is not a matter of in. Jesus says that. You come to the word, you come to the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. When actually the matter is not in, but through. And, and it is not a jungle for us to part the weeds and try, hope we can find this mystical gem hidden in the temple and run away from a big rock. It's actually a matter of us opening. I mean, he couldn't have made it simpler. Open it up and receive it. It's right here. Pointing us to Jesus. Pointing us to the one who has died. Pointing us to the one who has risen. Pointing us to the one who, through whom we hear the voice of God. We see his form. We don't, we don't see him visibly with our eyes. But we understand and we hear about who he is, what he is like. And his word then abides in us. 
This word that we read and why we say you should memorize scripture. Not because more Torah, more life, but because more Christ, more life. Because more Torah, more Christ, hopefully, is the idea. More of his word being in us produces a greater depth of faith and draws us closer to him. Because it's him who is doing it. It's he who is doing that work in us, not ourselves. He calls us to himself and gives us life. He does that through his word. He reveals that the root of our sin is unbelief. It's unwillingness to come to Christ. And that's why he has had to come to us. So we need to repent of coming to study the Bible, if that is our main goal. And we need to turn and come to Christ in the Bible. Do you remember the reading plan that I talked about in January? That maybe you started, maybe like me, you've had a lot of moments where you're like, I am too many weeks past where I'm supposed to be or, or behind where I'm supposed to be. Or maybe even came to a point where you're like, hey, man, I'm done. It's already February. I've I, I missed too many days. I'm just not even going to try anymore. The Bible reading plan is not, any Bible reading plan is not in itself a means for you to have more life. It's a means for you to meet more Christ, to, to find life in him. And, and it's not something that we're meant to say, okay, well, by this, I can give myself a good score on a scale of one to five. It's a tool to help us be disciplined with his word, to, to remember to come to it. And when we haven't, to say it's still worth it for me to open up the word, even if I am six months behind or whatever that might be. In our D group, we're doing a Barnabas Piper study and looking at the man in Mark 9 who has a demon-possessed son, and he says, you know, Jesus says, you know, yeah, if you believe, this can, I can heal him, absolutely. And the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. And one of the things that Piper brings up that's so helpful is that this is probably this man's last resort. He probably didn't come to Christ first. And we all know that it's the spiritual people that come to Christ first with their problems, Right? But we're all so tempted in saying things like, well, I'm going to try everything in my own power to make things right. And then when I have nothing else, I'll finally pray. And what's so good about that is that in that process, we condemn ourselves and say, oh my goodness, I am a two. I, I'm doing no good on my spiritual life at all. I don't have life. I, we can spiral so quickly. But what Piper said that was so helpful was that whether Jesus is our first resort or our last resort, he's always the right choice. It's always the right one. It's always right for us to come to Christ. He never has a moment where he says, hey, you, you've refused to come to me. I'm not coming to you. So how do you imagine Christ responds to you when you come to the word? Or maybe put a fun word in there before, finally. When you finally come to the word, how do you imagine Christ responds? Because he's ready to respond to you with grace. So if that's true, we need to walk in this truth. We need to come to the word daily. And I mean it, daily it is necessary. You eat every day, right? You brush your teeth every day, I hope, right? We, there are daily things we take care of ourselves with, and, and yet we can't just say, hey, I'll, I'll come and hope that it's a good sermon on Sunday that can carry me through the next week, because I'm going to tell you it's never going to be that good. And I mean that not as a self-deprecating motivation, but just it's never going to be enough. You need to come to the Word every day. You need to feed off of the food of God's Word so that you can come to Christ, so that you can store up his word in our, in our hearts. If you remember the beginning story of this, it says in John chapter 5, I don't know how I ended up in Luke 20, that's not where I'm supposed to be. In Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate there was a pool, which was five roof colonnades, verse 3, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And it struck me as I spent time with Jesus talking to the uppity religious people 
that they are in the same situation as this multitude of blind, lame, and paralyzed. It's just a spiritual difference. They don't come to Christ. They can't. They can't see him. They can't hear him. They can't speak. They can't cry out to him. They can't get up and walk to him. They're lost. And Jesus comes and says, do you want to be healed? And the man at the beginning of this chapter says, duh. Yeah, that's why I'm here. Are you kidding me? And I'm hopeless about it. And, and I wonder if the spirit of that question, the, the purpose of that question that Jesus asks that man carries over into this next conversation that he has. Do you want to be healed? No, you don't. You won't come to me because you don't want life. Because you, don't, you won't have life because you won't come to me. The matter is, is the same, our spiritual case, our physical case. So we need to come daily. We need to make it a regular pattern. And we need to believe that we can do that and that when we miss a day, it's not like, oh my goodness, I'm coming to Christ. I didn't read on Tuesday, but here I am. Boy, he's going to be disappointed with me. No, he has just as much grace on Wednesday as he wants to give you on Tuesday. So we can pour over the scriptures, not to prove or to earn or flaunt our eternal life or our rightness with God, but to dive deeper into it, to walk daily by its light, and to let it be that close friend that can always testify us to who Christ testify to us about who Christ is. So check your willingness. Charles Spurgeon said, Nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. So we should expect the truth of that in our lives as well. How are we supposed to find Christ in our reading? This is our closing thought here. The first thing is illumination. It's a big theological statement that if by itself we could live a lifeless Christianity if we just looked at theology, but theology helps us understand and walk deeper with our Lord, and so we should anticipate that and let that be our goal. 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit comes so that you can understand. How are we supposed to find Christ in our daily reading? The first step, Spirit, show me Christ in this passage. And please, because I'm in Leviticus, I have no idea, right? Show me Christ, the first and most important thing. And what do you think? Oh, I'm, I'm asking myself here. I'm sorry, that's why I've got this terrible, ugly face on, because I do this all the time. What do you think God's response is to that prayer? Well, you're really going to have to work for it, Nick. You're really going to have to show me. You're really going to have to pour over Grace, abounding grace upon grace. And yeah, it's, it's not to say forget deep study entirely because of course deep study is necessary in some of those cases. But Christ is not hidden in the scriptures in a way that Waldo was hidden in all those books. It's not a matter of our great work coming to Christ and saying, wow, I found you. Tip of the hat to me. We trust first in the illumination of scripture. The second thing I'll give you is a method. Do you have a method for finding Christ? And you say, well, I mean, if at all, it's very rare that I can sit down and say, hey, I've got two hours to study scripture, get my commentaries out, get my concordances, get all these things out. I'm talking about your daily bread, your daily moment with Christ. And daily bread is a good resource too. There's some on the table. But along with those other devotionals that are helpful, we also need to be able to come to God's word and to find Christ in one sense on our own, but of course, with the understanding of the illumination of Scripture. And so I have two things, uh, two articles that I found that I thought were really helpful, mostly because the words are easy to remember. The first pattern is called cram, C-R-A-M. And so in every passage, what can you find of the character of God, 
the responsibility of man, our attitudes or actions, and what do we have for meditations? Cram. You already memorized it, didn't you? The character of God, our responsibility, our attitudes and actions, and a meditation, something that I can deeply think on for the rest of the day. I love my Robert Murray McShane plan. I love that it takes me to four parts of scripture every day, but I can't read all four parts all at once and expect my day to be, you know, pointing to Christ in every way because I'm, I, I'll lose track of everything. So the, my, my best day in reading is taking one chapter in the morning and then coming again at a different time. Because here's another thing about food. We don't just stuff our faces at breakfast and then not eat again, right? Find something that you can find the character of God, your responsibility, an attitude or action you need to have or take, and a meditation, something to think deeply on. The second one that is more pointed at Christ um, particularly is really helpful. It's three words. And, and I have articles for these if you want to read more in depth about how to do these, but you can also probably just take these words and run with them to some degree. Um, first one is that Christ is either patterned or he is secondly promised or he is secondly, thirdly, present in any one passage that we might read. That he is patterned, that there's something that shows us our need for Christ or something of the character of Christ. That he has promised, just straight up said, God says, hey, here's what I'm going to do to fix the world. He may not say I'm going to offer my son as a sacrifice, but, but what God's actions are when he says, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to send you out. Whatever God's actions are, he's promising Christ. And then lastly, present. I mean, that's John for us right here, Christ present with us. So take one of those this week. Take pattern, promise, and present. Or take cram, character, responsibility, attitude, and action, and meditation. And let me ask you too, what in your life is leading you to search the word of God for Christ rightly? What is it in your life? And you might not even think that that's what it's really doing. Your financial struggle, your relational problems, whatever those things are. You may not think that right off the bat, they're telling, you know, the problem that I'm having with my wife is that I need to find Christ more in scripture. That sounds like a big jump, but it's not a bad jump right? It's true. The problem I'm having with my finances, the problem that I'm having at work, the problem, I need to see Christ and see what he's doing in my life. That's a good uh, step to take. So what in your life is leading you to the word to find Christ? Secondly, what roadblocks are in the way? Is there something that you think is a roadblock that is actually trying to lead you in that direction? And then very, very plainly and obviously, what is your reading plan? I'm not saying you need to read through the Bible in a year or two years or three years or five years. I don't know. I guess if you get to five years, you should probably have it done by then, right? But what is your plan for reading Scripture? What's the next step you're going to take to come to the Word and say, I'm going to find Christ in this? Would you go home and reread this passage today? Just take five minutes to do it and then talk to somebody about your plan for reading Scripture? And I really mean it. Would you, would you be willing to talk to somebody about that? I'd love to talk with you about a plan for reading scripture and commiserate about our failures if necessary. But also to take hope in the fact that we're in this together and we're not alone in looking for Christ in scripture. He's given us all we need for life and godliness and he's revealed that to us in his word. The good news of Christ, freely given to us. He's come to us because we're unwilling to come to him. Would you hear his voice this morning? Would you let Christ be your only hope in this life, and even in death and in a life to come? Would you bow your heads with me, please?
Father, I thank you this morning that your word has come to us freely, not so that we can search diligently and create on our own some rightness before you, rather because in them we find a testimony of Christ. And we want to glorify him even in our last song now. We pray that you'd give us your spirit, your help to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.